When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and our region. I'm Professor Sharon Bessel from the Crawford School of Public Policy, and I'm back again with Anna Greta Hunter. Anna Greta, hi. Hi, Sharon. And for those who don't know me, I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and part of the ANU Medical School, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow here at ANU this year. And Anna Greta and I are at the moment having a ball with these conversations with incredible people about fundamentally important issues. And this week, we're back with episode four of our Wellbeing Economy mini-series as part of Policy Forum Pod, looking at new ideas and approaches to how economics might help reshape society for the better. And we've been looking at things such as basic income that we talked about last week with our fantastic guest, Professor Guy Standing. Policy Forum Pod is produced by Policy Forum Net right here at the Crawford School of Public Policy, which is the Asia Pacific's leading graduate public policy school. Do have a look at our degree programs and our short courses at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study and have a bit of a delve into some of the amazing programs that we offer. And as we move into 2021, we're going to be offering a really exciting Crawford combined model that puts together both online and face-to-face learning. So do go and have a look at what we've got on offer. On this episode today, we want to discuss global development in light of the coronavirus pandemic. COVID-19 has changed the lives of people around the world. And it's pushed governments to respond with previously unseen welfare interventions. Yet social and economic inequality are deepening around the globe, with a widening gender pay gap, lack of access to stable internet, rising protectionism in a number of countries and societies are increasingly facing what look like intractable difficulties A recent report by the OECD shows that developing countries are facing a shortfall of about US $1.7 trillion in the financing that they would need this year to keep them on track for the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. And of course, as we face this global pandemic, the question arises as to whether the SDGs themselves are still fit for purpose. Mm, It's a really important question. So today, that's what we want to ask. We want to ask how COVID-19 has reshaped countries' development and what can policymakers do to ensure that development is more sustainable and equitable going forward. And so joining us on today's discussion is Professor David Hume. 
He is the Professor of Development Studies at the University of Manchester, where he's also the Executive Director of the Global Development Institute and CEO of the Effective State and Inclusive Development Research Centre. He's worked on rural development, poverty and poverty reduction, microfinance, the role of the NGO in conflict and peace and development, environmental management, social protection and the political economy of global poverty for more than 30 years. His main focus has been on Bangladesh, but he's also worked extensively across South Asia, East Africa and the Pacific. David, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. It's very good to uh, to join you in this fascinating series. Yeah, well, we're certainly having a great time in this conversation and we're very grateful for the time that you can offer our listeners today. You've written a great deal on global development and the politics that underpins development. What for you is development? How would you conceptualise or define it? Yeah, no, that's uh, starting with the simple questions. Eh? What is uh, what, what, what is development? Um, I think development um, at the sort of the most general level is human flourishing, and it is for all human beings to be able to um, to aspire and to be able to partially achieve the lives that they uh, that they value, to be able to 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 to, uh, to have the yeah the, the things, the social relationships, um, some of the material goods uh, that they want. I mean, I r- rather like the idea that's come out of Latin America recently of sort of uh, buen vivir and the idea of people being able to live a good life and a good life being uh, people being able to achieve the things they want in life, but in ways that don't damage the lives of other people so that people can um, yeah, c- can achieve some economic goals, but also their health goals, their social uh, goals, think about their relationships, think about how they manage their in a way, the progress of their life over time, um, but one in which they are not actually damaging other people, damaging other people by uh, by promoting inequality or by using so much of the world's resources, by uh, which they are causing uh, climate change and damaging the prospects of others who use that uh, that environment. So I'd see it as fairly uh, broadly based. And I suppose in terms of the question that you've been putting for some of this series, I think we need to look at the economics of development and look at the economics of growth, but we need to move well beyond that or we'll be focusing upon a means to development. And people, in a way, need to have the uh, the income and the resources to be able to flourish in life. Um, but simply accumulating more and more resources for yourself is definitely not going to, uh, I think, lead to personal development or to development across society and more broadly um, uh, across the entire globe. Oh, I think that's a beautiful way to start. And those those key phrases of the, of the human flourishing and what it is to lead a good life. Uh, I think that those two ideas are really core to this series that we've been discussing, uh, as you mentioned. But maybe if we're starting this conversation, how would you describe the dominant or orthodox approach to global development? Well, the, the orthodox approach, I mean, as with all these things, one, one is always uh, simplifying on them. But um, I mean, conventionally, uh, the idea of development was very much associated with economic growth and with increasing uh, yeah, GDP per capita GNI, uh, uh, gross national income per capita uh, nowadays, and was very closely associated uh, with that growth. But that was with the assumption that then, in a way, somehow all good things came together, and that if you had economic growth, then health and education and somehow democracy would follow uh, alongside that uh, that growth. What we've certainly found, I mean, going back into the 1960s and 1970s, was that uh, growth was sometimes hard to uh, to achieve. But when it was achieved, it didn't necessarily lead to uh, to broader development and to human flourishing, and that was quite often because the growth in a way had side effects such as destroying the environment, stopping other people from being able to make their livelihoods, stopping other people from being able to live the lives which they wanted uh, to pursue. Um, And uh, it it also led to uh, inequality which allowed groups of people to dominate other groups so that one could have economic growth, but alongside it, one had very high levels um, of poverty. That was 
challenged um, as we moved into the 1990s. There was a, I mean, a full-blooded neoliberal period in the 1980s when simply leaving everything to the market and relying upon prices to allocate all goods and services um, was believed to, uh, to to be the way to get development because that would allow everybody to compete and somehow that intense competition would mean that everybody would get what they what they deserved, what they were from what they were contributing. And in the 1990s, we did begin to move to broader ideas, particularly with Amartya Sen's work and his ideas about uh, human capabilities, but particularly the way that was simplified into the idea of human development. And we began to move into the idea of looking at a human development index, the, the human development reports, which the United Nations um, produced. That got some traction and led uh, many people to to think about uh, about development more broadly. Um, but there still seems certainly whether one's looking at democratic or more autocratic political systems, seem to be this belief in economic growth that leaders and those close to leaderships have. And uh, it's certainly in in most political settings, then there seems to be a strong belief that economic growth as it's conventionally um, understood, producing sort of goods and services that have market prices attached to them, that that is essential. believe that's essential partly to keep, I suppose, the public and uh, broader society hanging in with one, but also when one begins to look at the politics, then economic growth often seems to meet the needs of uh, those who hold elite and privileged positions in a country and internationally. And so whilst the idea of economic growth as being uh, what development is about has been challenged, it's proving difficult to move away from it. Back in the late 2000s, the Sarkozy uh, Commission uh, convened by uh, President Sarkozy in France got uh, a whole set of uh, economists and development specialists, um, including Nobel Prize winners like Amartya Sen and Joe Stiglitz. And they looked at how they could create some broader measure that national governments and national leaders could use that wouldn't just be about growth, but it would be about health and education and people being able to achieve the goals that they wanted in a sustainable way. That produced an excellent report and um, was well fed into the media, but still this falling back to growth as the uh, the thing that one must always look at uh, when, I suppose, when push comes to shove. If times get difficult, then it's growth uh, that uh, that leaders seem to look for. David, that's a, a fantastic mapping, I think, of the thinking around development, you know, over the, the past several decades. And I guess we now find ourselves at a moment in time as a result of, of this really awful pandemic of perhaps having an opportunity to think rather differently. And back in April of this year, you wrote a piece in Global Policy with Rory Horner where you mapped out possible scenarios, the ugly, the bad and the good that might result from the global pandemic. And I think one of the lovely things about that piece was there was the optimism of what the good might be. But also one of the things that struck me in that piece was the quote that you used when you said or you described the oft-found crisis tendency of socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor. I wonder if you could just tease out what you meant by that phrase and whether that's what we are seeing several months on from that piece that you wrote in April. Yes, no, I, I think when we were looking at that, we were certainly um, we're thinking about the COVID-19 crisis, but also looking back to the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009, and were very much, uh, I, I, I suppose, influenced by the fact that when you look back to 2008, 2009, and earlier periods of financial crisis, then... <laughs> The banks have to be bailed out and the very wealthy people who own the banks or have the shares in the banks or have their assets associated, particularly with finance, but also with, with, with uh, other forms of corporate uh, activity, they end up being protected by the public um, purse so that they get the benefits of uh, money being shared out. But that actually, when you look at the 
costs, uh, who, who, who takes the costs on that are caused by a crisis of various sorts, then often that is very much the, the poor. And particularly those in the informal sector who tend to get, in a way, purely market-based impacts passing through to their lives. And because they're not actually I mean, formally recognized, formally employed, they don't get the benefits um, of unemployment or of, uh, subsidized health services uh, or forms of uh, support to maintain them um, through the period. So it is that, uh, that yeah, there's certainly been a, an experience in the past where the protection that states offer uh, to citizens and groups when a crisis occurs, that that ends up being concentrated on better off groups and those who hold assets and is not uh, extended to those who are most desperately in need and who are suffering uh, most uh, most deeply. And I think we can certainly see that in um, many of the responses, well, many of the things that have happened uh, with COVID-19. Uh, I mean, when one looks at inequality and, and that sort of expression, one has to recognise one's position. I'm an upper middle class person in the UK. So the COVID-19 crisis um, has not uh, been particularly bad for me. Uh, my salary continues to come in. I have the National Health Service uh, available for me. The shops uh, in the area where I live have kept uh, running and I've actually had some benefits. I can take walks at different times of day because I work by Zoom and on the internet. So actually, I've got more control um, over the uh, the things that I can uh, do uh, with the day, I don't have to spend uh, an hour, an hour and a half a day driving into Manchester and driving out. When one looks at the other end of the scale, the people I tend to look at um, most closely are, are, are people in uh, in Bangladesh, uh, people living in in villages, and people living in the uh, informal settlements and slums in Dhaka and uh, Chittagong. And COVID nineteen has absolutely. Um, stalled their capacity to get livelihoods work that we're doing at Manchester, which monitors 60 families um, in rural Bangladesh, has shown the way that their income fell dramatically when the government tried to lock down uh, in late March and April. And although it's come up very slightly, they're still in a very depressed uh, economy, very few opportunities to um, to get income, uh, the opportunities to engage with agriculture greatly reduced, and their access to health services uh, really, um, really stopped. And so it is that often the way that states respond to a crisis actually ends up protecting those who have assets and are wealthy and actually is not able to cope or chooses not to cope so well with the problems that face lower income groups and poorer people. Um, and you've probably got the same uh, issues in Australia, but certainly when one looks at the, uh, at the UK, whilst I can go to the shops and get the things that I want, our food banks are... Um, expanding enormously on the demand for food banks, giving poor households access to very basic food through charity um, has grown enormously over the six months, last six months, and looks like it is really going to increase as we move on uh, into winter. So our governments are doing a lot, are apparently spending a lot on welfare, but still those at the bottom um, of the uh, of the income and the livelihoods uh, continuum seem to be uh, not getting the support that one would hope uh, the government would give them. David, we're seeing very similar things happening here in Australia, and I think the other very powerful thing that I take from from the comments that you made about Bangladesh is so much of the coverage that we're seeing in the media, in Australia at least, of, of COVID-19 and its impacts is focusing on relatively wealthy countries where there certainly are some some devastating impacts on people's lives. But what we're seeing much less of is what's happening in um in developing countries in the global south. So I think it's it's so important that we think about that part of the picture as well. But I was thinking as you were talking about food banks in the UK and the, the greater urgency of need about some of the really interesting things that we've seen. And one of the things that we, we've been looking at from Australia is the role of someone like Marcus Rashford, 
who um, has played such an important political role in arguing for the need to feed hungry children um, and using his status as a footballer and as a celebrity to be able to put that issue onto the agenda. How important do you think it is for people like Rashford, who are not normal political players, to engage in those debates at the moment? I, well, sort of two different a- aspects on this. I think what Rashford has, uh, has done and the way that he's got attention um, for the issue of how children uh, will get access to food when they're not getting uh, free free school meals is incredibly important. Um I mean, the the thing that one would criticise him about is that he's looking for a charitable route to solve the problem. But the thing that one really needs to praise him about is he's forced the government to think about its policies and how they relate to uh, particularly to poor children in poor households. And that is incredibly important. And um, certainly in the UK, um, yeah, we certainly have a government which, although it's actually won a lot of uh, seats in the poorer parts of the UK, doesn't seem to have the channels open to be able to talk um, to the people, um, to many of the working class people in the poorer households who decided to vote for the government last year. And you actually see this in the Conservative Party at the moment. The uh, There is a northern research group of Conservative MPs uh, and they're in a way becoming the awkward squad because they perceive that the policies that have been uh, been operating in the UK are coming out of London and don't relate to the deep economic and social problems which quite large numbers of people face in those parts of the UK which de-industrialised in the 60s, 70s and 80s and have not yet uh, find, uh, found routes to recover. So I think what Rashford is saying in terms of pointing out the way that um, the Conservative Party may have won the votes last year, but it hasn't created a mechanism to listen to the voices of the people who decided not to vote for Labour as they would have done in the past, but to uh, to, 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 the, to, to trust the Conservative Party, that Rashford has really pointed that out. And certainly um, it just comes out very clearly at the moment that we do have um, a relatively small centralised uh, policy-making uh, unit uh, at Downing Street, and it is composed of people who come from uh, middle-class and elite backgrounds who don't understand what it's like for the, in a way, hundreds of thousands of millions uh, of families in uh, yeah, in the Midlands and in the north of the UK who live in, uh, in areas where the economy has not yet recovered from the collapse of, uh, of British industry and the quite different types of things that they need. And the fact that yeah, access to a pound's worth of food at lunchtime for a child could make an enormous difference to <laughs> to that child's, in a way, development in terms of their health, in terms of their ability to concentrate um, and, and learn during the day, um, and in terms of their aspirations and the way that they, uh, yeah, they see uh, themselves flourishing or not flourishing. So I think um, at the sort of setting new norms and promoting uh, the idea that we need to be thinking much more about what's happening to the disadvantaged households, Marcus Rashford has been very successful. David, you said that if there was anything that we would perhaps criticise Rashford's approach for, it's it's the fact that it's kind of based in charity um, or sees charitable solutions as the way forward. How would you reframe that conversation to move away from the emphasis on charitable giving to something else? Well, it, it's well, one uh, often when one's looking at trying to change policies, then uh, one might look at the role of individuals, but really one needs to be looking at coalitions at different to individuals and groups who are interacting to promote a particular policy change um, idea. So, uh, you know, if, if, if one was to step back and take that sort of a- academic um, approach, then one would uh, one would be arguing that Rashford should just push a little bit more that the government uh, needs to move beyond simply saying, oh, we'll give them meals during the holidays to 
looking at those households um, much more comprehensively and how those households will be supported whilst the crisis is still with us, but also how those households will be supported so that as the crisis becomes less significant and we move out of it, that those households will actually get um, you know, a, a leg up, that they won't simply be left where they were in the past, that they will actually have access to, to decent food um, and be in a better position in terms of planning what they want to achieve and uh, being able to uh, achieve that for the parents, but particularly the parents supporting the children uh, in in their aspirations. And in a way, you know, that is being done uh, more broadly by the debates within the Conservative Party, by the way in which the Labour Party has uh, at times supported Conservative policy, but at other times is pushing it uh, so that it actually thinks somewhat more compassionately about those who have very few choices and for whom the COVID-19 crisis um, has really reduced their options. So I think, yeah, one would want to, uh, Rashford in a way, to keep with his high profile and to keep that agenda uh, getting public attention and get it getting it in the social media getting it in the uh, in, in the popular uh, media in the UK whilst others come around to make sure that uh, whilst charity does its best we get changes in government policy that will mean that we won't get this callousness and it it was remarkable in the UK the way that um, a few months ago when uh, the, the the continuing school meals during the summer holidays um, was stopped for children and Rashford came forward and the government decided to continue with it. But then exactly the same, in a way, <laughs> withdrawal of the free school meals uh, occurred when we came to the autumn uh, holidays. And I, I suppose if one was to be... Um, <laughs> rather crude about this, it would be this is certainly some conservative governments going back to the conventional, their orthodox thinking about poverty and believing that poor people are poor because they don't work hard enough and they don't think hard enough about how to uh, improve their economic position. And the tendency certainly for many conservatives not to recognise the structural roots of poverty. David, I think taking that conversation and your definition of development as human flourishing, we see that those critical issues of development apply globally, you know, to a, what we would generally describe as wealthy countries as as well as the global south. And in thinking about some of those issues and ways forward, I, I wanted to go back again to that global policy piece that you wrote. And you described there a bad scenario as returning to what might be described as the pre-COVID business as usual. And you wrote, that's where we have historically high, in inverted commas, levels of human development and relatively low, in inverted commas, uh, levels of absolute poverty. Why do you see that situation as bad and something to be avoided? And perhaps there's a lost opportunity. It is essentially because if we go back to to business as usual and are satisfied with that, then we continue to to deepen uh, the problems in a way which were undermining uh, the achievement of a, of a full-blooded global development and of, of development um, across the world. And that is if we continue with forms of economic processes which are increasing economic and social inequality, then uh, we, we, uh, we will not be moving towards a, a world in which there is social justice and in which all people can flourish. We'll be allowing some to have exceptionally broad choices with flourishing, but large proportions of humanity um, to have very few opportunities to flourish. And many of those people uh, still, when they hit a problem like a health problem or something uh, like that, having to move into debt or having to actually, uh, in a way, take on disability or experience an unnecessary premature debt because they cannot get access to very limited uh, quantities um, of income um, of resource to uh, get access to to health services so you know the, the bad scenario is going back to allowing inequality to um, to grow uh, um, it, it, yeah in the way that it uh, it, it was um, extreme poverty I mean 
has been going down. And that's one of the great things we have to celebrate about the late 20th and the early 21st century. But the way in which inequality and particularly inequality within countries has been rising um, has really uh, reduced the, the ability of economic growth and those growth processes to actually improve lives across the board and has tended to concentrate benefits in the hands of uh, of a limited part of the population. And the second point is obviously about sustainability. And if we go back to the sort of carbon profligate um, economic growth uh, processes and consumption um, uh, sort of norms that we uh, that, that the world had and that were extending uh, into Asia and across Africa as a middle class is being created in Africa, then to go back to where we were would be both to fail on the social justice front, but also to fail on the sustainability front. And that seems uh, seems a pretty bad scenario to me. Absolutely. David, I think you're joining the, the chorus um, in the conversation that we've been having so far that uh, the opportunity for radical transformation is is part of the challenge of 2020 uh, and that the opportunity to, to approach things quite differently is in front of us. You've spoken about joined up policies for international development. What do you mean by that? And how is it different from the dominant orthodox approaches? Okay, yeah, no, I mean, the, the work that we've been doing at, uh, at the University of Manchester on that has looked at the way that I mean, the old idea of international development from the 20th century, which was of rich nations transferring finance or transferring um Technologies or transferring forms of organisation to uh, to developing countries, to Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Pacific. That that is just totally inappropriate nowadays, and all of our economies and societies are deeply uh, interlinked through trades in goods and services, through the transfer of uh, of information, and so in this global development era. Uh, in which we live, we need to be looking at a set of policies which are not simply about sort of transfers of small amounts of finance or technologies, but really look at trade policies and how trade policies can be reformed so that they will allow uh, lower income countries and lower middle income countries to retain more of the value of the products that they um, are producing and of the labor that the citizens um, are, are, are creating, uh, to look at finance finance policies which provide the finance that will allow for economic development, infrastructural development, and development of human services of health and education in uh, in countries, uh, in lower income uh, countries, uh, and that will not lead to indebtedness um, and uh, w w which finance can be in a way well allocated and well um, targeted uh, and to uh, to look at, a, at the way in which the environment now has to be factored into all policies and we have to look at the way that uh, the advanced nations of the world are producing much more uh, global uh, uh, global greenhouse uh, glasses, uh, gases, uh, 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 and they have done that historically, and that we take responsibility for that, and that we move very quickly to mitigating those emissions and to financing adaptation um, in countries uh, in a way that are experiencing uh, the bad effects um, of those uh, of those uh, emissions. So it's looking at a much broader range um, of international linkages and thinking about how we get those so that uh, human flourishing um, can occur in our own countries, but can also occur um, in other parts of the uh, world and, uh, yeah, uh, and for the populations uh, in other parts of the world. Some of that, I mean, does move on to, uh, I think, some of the, uh, the, well, the the idea that you're looking at a, a week or two ago on neoliberalism, and it is somehow how certainly in the West we stop transmitting uh, the idea that greed is good or that incredible wealth um, is a good thing, and that we uh, we get people who aspire to do well economically and aspire to do well socially, but who don't see simply having more and more assets and more and more resources as a, as a good way for them to proceed. 
Mm, absolutely. And so so the, this um, reframing of our economic system that allows us to gen- genuinely and deeply account for, for societal and human uh, well-being and for environmental sustainability, I think, is at the core of our conversation. And that this might be a good place for us to take a very short break. And we'll be back in a few minutes. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. And welcome back. We're still here with David Hume. David, it's a fantastic discussion so far. Thank you again for joining us. I might start by asking you about the Sustainable Development Goals and where you see them, uh, their role in bringing about sustainable and equitable development. Are they a game changer or are they essentially continuing the status quo? Okay, no, that's a a great question. I think the SDGs are an opportunity uh, that those who are looking for transformation um, must try to use and must use as much as they uh, can do. But they're not a game changer um, in some foundational sense. And I've been look, I looked at the Millennium Development Goals that were agreed in 2000, 2001, and I did contrast them with the uh, sustainable Development Goals that were approved in September 2015 at the United Nations General Assembly, but they were sort of developed over 2012, 13, 14 through a whole set um, of, of, of complicated international conversations. And when you look at the MDGs and the SDGs, then you have got some really uh, big changes in terms of the content, but also in terms of the process. And in terms of the content, probably the uh, the really important thing to notice is that um, inequality comes through as um, SDG number 10. And inequality was, uh, when one goes back to 2000, was only allowed into the conversation of what uh, all member countries of the UN uh, could agree uh, in 2000. It was only allowed on the edge and only in terms of reducing gender inequality at the national level. When you get to 2015, then it's possible for the UN membership to agree a goal of reducing uh, inequality within countries and across countries. So it's actually talking about inequality in a broad-based sense should be something that is to be achieved within countries, but also that uh, in a way that uh, wealthier countries should not be as out of kilter as contrasted with poorer countries, that there needs to be a leveling up um, of the low-income and middle-income countries. So that's a potentially a a fairly uh, radical uh, change in content. But one does have to say, in a way, these are words on paper and policy statements that are made. And sort of five years into the SDGs, there's relatively little evidence that national policies or international policies are changing because of SDG 10. So in a way, it's it's a move forward, but... (laughs) Yeah, we have to get the rhetoric to move, but then you have to get the rhetoric to get traction so that policies begin to change. And there's relatively little evidence of that now. And the impacts certainly of the COVID-19 crisis uh, will be pretty complicated as one tries to work out um, how they've knocked on to sustainable development goal uh, number 10. Um, so you know, I think the SDGs are, are, are progress. The way in which I, I think they haven't managed to to really uh, 
I suppose, transform things is in terms of, of, of what happens. And certainly in most countries, I still see conventional forms of economic growth, which we talked about earlier on, and in a way, growth by transferring high levels of material consumption to Asia and to Africa as the main form of um, of the main route to achieving national uh, development. And that clearly is unsustainable. Um, those of us who live in high income and high consumption countries have got to reduce our consumption and certainly decarbonize extremely uh, rapidly. And I mean, people who are beginning to experience um, more better economic prospects in Asia and Africa and other parts of the world need to be, um, in a way, taking advantage of those in ways which are not going to produce large volumes of greenhouse gases. So we need those, uh, those several goals that talk about sustainability. We need to find ways of taking those forward. The sustainability goals do seem to be making uh, progress. That's probably maybe more because of the Paris sort of climate change uh, agreement than the sustainable development goals but the sustainable development goals i mean have great value in that in any formal conversation uh between nations or even within a nation you can present those as something which 193 member states of the united nations have agreed so what what is stated in the sustainable development goals uh, now has uh, has greater le legitimacy in a way that it mightn't have had it um in the past if i can just two more thoughts occur as i'm talking if, if i can go into those i mean the interesting thing with the sd G10 is it does make it much more difficult for people to say inequality is a good thing. And if you look back to the 1980s um, in the USA and in the UK under Thatcher, then there was a well, there was a strong belief, which some people were prepared to talk about in public, which is that inequality is a good thing. If I am somehow creating wealth and my bank account is moving from hundreds of millions to billions, then that's good for everybody else because I'm creating jobs and I'm creating um, opportunities. But as we've, uh, as we've seen and as we continue to see, uh, whenever we look closely at those economic processes, quite often that is by people um, in a way, t using the labor of others to produce value, but then not allowing those people to benefit from their labor and from the innovations whether whether it's uh, whether it's physical labor or whether it's creative uh, labor and so we we've seen that those uh, processes uh, uh, continue but people no longer actually promote inequality uh, as a good thing and you know the argument used to run inequality is good because it leads to differences which increases competition and competition is always good and we need more inequality to keep on driving it those sorts of pro inequality arguments um, people tend to back away from them and if you watch davos each year then each year when the world's wealthiest people get together they all nod their heads that they've got to reduce inequality um, but then somehow we can't get them to to leave davos and promote equality uh, the day after david in this series we've been looking at a whole range of new ideas and approaches but one of the ideas that has been central to the conversations that we've been having is the idea of a well-being economy. And that's generally discussed as a potential solution to a whole raft of problems, including problems around inequality, around poverty within wealthy countries. Do you think the ideas that underpin a well-being economy have relevance for countries of the global south and indeed for global development? I, I must be honest, and I've only looked briefly at the idea of the well-being economy, but it certainly is very appealing. And certainly in Europe, um, it's similar probably to some of the ideas about a solidarity economy um, uh, that, that, that have been developed, in which one is thinking, um, people are encouraged to think about their own in a way, development and economic development processes, but think about the way in which they can also contribute to the well-being of others and or compromise or reduce the well-being um, of others. Um, I mean, the way in which I, I think a well-being economy may have real value and give uh, 
insights that are that are needed, which I can only partly understand, is if one looks at the future of employment, because um, there's certainly a lot of work in pointing out that with uh, with artificial intelligence and machine learning, that uh, it's not simply in a way those involved in manufacturing uh, labour who may find that the, 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 their work is being taken over and they're displaced, but it's people that are actually in jobs as solicitors and uh, general practitioners in medicine who could find that the, the, the work um, is being threatened. But I think if one moves to the idea of a well-being economy, then one could certainly think of employment, um, which is much more based uh, in people providing personal services um, to each other, which they value and which allow them to have a reasonably high standard of living uh, in economic terms, but also allow them to enjoy their lives and to to feel well, to feel they are living in a in a good society. And uh, if you've looked at the work of Danny Roderick, he's very pessimistic about uh, global employment prospects uh, because he perceives that manufacturing, uh, in a way, employment around the world has narrowed down with the mechanization and robotic processes which we can uh, can now use, uh, and also that in, in a way that most manufacturing, uh, in a way for a period, is going to be based in China, so that particularly if one looks at Africa, that Africa hasn't got the opportunity to move on to manufacturing and industrialization as a way of improving incomes and improving human development. But I do think the idea of a well-being economy, if one was actually thinking of uh, more people being involved in counselling and quite clearly um, yeah, our mental health needs um, are much greater um, around the world, but particularly in high-income countries, than we'd ever um, ever allowed, whereas mental health was seen, uh, mental health problems were in a way treated as a small set of problems for a small group of people. We now realize that throughout their lives, many people could certainly do with counseling services and therapy services that will help them think about how they deal with the breakup of social relationships, the aging process, and uh, a whole set of other issues. Similarly, with physiotherapy and a, a, it's Pilates and one moves on to yoga but quite clearly there are a whole set of reasonably sort of employment intensive activities which once people are encouraged to uh, to engage in them can make people feel much better uh, can actually help them maintain a a weight which is more likely to give them uh, long-term health and allow them a whole set of choices about what they do, help them to reduce the likelihood of diabetes and the way in which that constrains lives and a, a whole set of physical benefits. So, um, I mean, I find the idea of a well-being economy appealing and particularly the idea that actually providing services to each other uh, that help us feel good and make us yeah, feel good the next day and look forward to the future um, could be a major part um, of uh, of that economy in a way which many economists, I think, who, who have problems in trying to work out how services um, like physiotherapy on a large scale, like yoga teaching on a large scale, like therapy on a large scale, the way in which they could actually become a, a more significant component that might make lives uh, more satisfying. Oh, David, you're going to, uh, to again, to some of the themes that are really coming out strongly through our, our series. Um, and uh, just uh, well, by the by, on the mental health and productivity, we had a Productivity Commission report that was released today that shows a tremendous economic uh, imprint of the mental health uh, challenges that are faced in Australia. It's about 10% of our, of our um, economic activity is then attributed to um, or that is then a cost that's born from a mental health effect. So it's a really profound one. But the two themes that you've just picked up on um, include thinking about work and what role it plays and how we might be able to reframe work. And the, the, the starting point for Sharon and I on this journey was about the value of caring um, and the role that caring and the human relationships can play in our economic structure. And so we've seen several initiatives around the world that have sought to go against the business of usual model of economic growth and the neoliberal model, and particularly places, I guess, like Bhutan's idea of gross national happiness and the genuine progress indicator might be a couple of examples. 
Are these approaches taking us towards a genuine change and towards something like the wellbeing economy? Do you think they're useful models? I think they they may be, and certainly the recognition that um, the gradual recognition that caring is is not something which is done by women for free and it's their role to do it and they should just do it and keep quiet and be happy. But the fact that yeah, caring is a central part of our economy and it needs to be valued, uh, valued in social terms, but also valued in, in economic terms. I think we've are beginning to make um, progress um, on that. But I, I suppose the transformation um, may require a, a, a whole um, in a whole set of changes. I was thinking the way, I mean, we were using the term mental health, I think, on uh, both sides of the, the conversation, but whether one can move that towards mental well-being. So it's not seeing mm. therapy and counselling as solutions to a problem that you have, but it's seeing sort of therapy and counselling as a standard thing, which most people need at some stage in their lives just to help them to balance things out and to keep cheerful and to uh, to go on without uh, having that sort of personal uh, angst and anxiety which can so often in a way damage people's experience of day-to-day life and damage them thinking about what they want to do and thinking about their aspirations so um, I, I, I think definitely valuing the caring economy and thinking about the sorts of ideas that would take that forward. Um, I think one of the big tests in the UK, maybe the same in Australia, um, when one gets three or four years beyond uh, COVID-19, uh, assuming that we that we can get beyond it, we'll be looking um, at the wages of people who work in the care sector and seeing whether, as in the UK, they are pitched at the minimum wage and often managed in ways in which people who work in the care sector don't get paid when they're driving between jobs or have penalties um, if they're late for appointments, so actually they're paid below minimum wage, uh, to whether one moves to a position in which people who are care workers are valued more in economic terms and the enormous contribution that they make um, to society is is recognised. At the moment in the uh, UK, as in many other parts of the world, but we've been applauding both our health workers and our care workers. And in um, May and June, throughout May and June this year, then every Thursday night across the uh, UK, people came out of their houses and clapped to say thank you to the national health, but also to the care workers who are taking care of people who have uh, problems with ageing, problems with disability. yeah, a real test will be whether that was being grateful when we were in a crisis moment, but then forgetting those people when things are returning uh, to you know inverted commas normal, um, or whether we do actually begin to think you know the the pay rates of these people, uh, the way in which they're treated in society, is just not fair given the amazing contribution that they make. Uh, that will definitely be one of the tests that yeah, I'll be thinking about looking at whether uh, care workers' uh, wage rates and conditions are improving or whether they've slipped back. And if they do slip back, it would suggest that uh, the idea of a well-being economy is is not advancing um, at the speed that uh, yeah, you and I might like it to. I think that's a fantastic indicator, David, in terms of how we take this moment um, as an opportunity for change or whether we do just slip back into, you know, the bad or the ugly where we don't appreciate and value and respond accordingly to the people who play such a critical role within our societies. Um, and I guess the the other thing that will be an indicator as we move beyond COVID or learn to, to live with COVID is how we think about and how we address poverty, which is becoming an increasing problem where we're seeing the backsliding um, in both wealthy countries but also across the global south as a direct result of the pandemic. And one of the arguments that you've put forward um, prior to the, the context of COVID is that to address poverty, we should give money to the poor. And that's an argument that's been described as an elegantly simple solution. 
are you arguing here for something like universal basic income or do you see another model in terms of simply giving money to the poor as a means of addressing poverty? That's a great great question and we do have to recognise, I think, the World Bank looking at extreme poverty, dollar ninety a day poverty, which is, you know, that's an incredibly low measure. That, that, that is such an awful life to lead if that's the command of resources that you have um, in terms of trying to feed yourself, uh, keep warm or keep cool uh, and pay for some basic health services if, if needed. But that's gone up by 40 to 80, 90 million. I mean, less positive perspectives say that, you know, we'll be moving into uh, – 100 to 200 million uh, more people uh, in extreme poverty. And that's after 25, 30 years of extreme poverty coming down. Then certainly the COVID-19 short-term impact has been to uh, cascade large numbers of people who were above a very basic poverty line uh, below that um, that line. Just give money to the poor. Um, we, uh, in a way, when we wrote that book and we'd been looking at social protection, we focused very much upon the national level and uh, were particularly uh, arguing that in low-income and lower-middle-income countries, there were sufficient resources for social protection programs to protect people from unemployment, to ensure that poor households could get um, a minimum income that would at least allow them to feed their children and clothe their children and allow for their physical advancement. So I mean, just give money to the poor. We focused very much on the national uh, level. Um, but that was, I, I think, with a belief that if one begins to get um, most countries in the world recognizing that relatively small sums of cash transfers, if if it's well done uh, and, and well managed, um, would greatly reduce um, extreme poverty. And then we could move on to thinking perhaps about a universal uh, basic income and or thinking about how we begin to look at relative poverty and how we tackle relative poverty. The universal basic um, income, I think you've had guys standing, so you've heard the the strong case that can be made for that. Um, at the moment, I think if one was looking at it, the, the problem is the the global solidarity that one would need if one was moving to universal basic income, because that would require some systematic um, form of, in a way, international taxation um, or committed long-term international uh, finance, which certainly at the moment is is lacking in the world. One is not going to get that um, in the United Nations at the moment, even though we may be optimistic about some of the changes in the States. It's unimaginable that a US president would uh, would actually take a lead in promoting an idea like that. China although it is trying to understand its position in a way in leading on issues of global development, um, is not likely to, to take on such an ambitious idea. So I think promoting the idea of universal uh, basic income uh, remains a, a significant and important activity because it confronts the sort of norms that uh, allocate resources at the moment that shape uh, growth processes and we need to keep on uh, confronting them but I, I would still be looking in a way focusing uh, at the national level on trying to get social protection systems established uh, particularly in low-income countries and lower middle-income countries which um, which give the poorest people um <laughs> a way out of the deep poverty, but then moving on to thinking about, so if we use a, a relative idea of poverty, how would we improve those who are relatively poor and reduce inequality at the uh, at the same time? I mean, interestingly, I think if one looks at China at the moment, they are beginning to, to move in uh, in that sort of direction, in in rhetoric, if maybe not yet uh, in policy, but certainly China is perceiving itself as having almost overcome the problem of extreme poverty, but has begun to talk in the last two or three years much more about how is inequality reduced um, and is is realising that in a way we need policies that hand in hand um, reduce extreme poverty, but also don't accept that that 
that's where social protection stops. And that then look at, well, how do we move on to those um, who may be above some incredibly basic level? How do we move on to integrating them more fully into society so that we don't have these um, yeah, very high and unacceptable levels of inequality? That's a, a wonderful uh, description, I think, of, of where we're at. David, you've very eloquently walked us through a complicated landscape around global human development and the relationship with, with the current economic paradigm uh, of the world in which we live. I think you've offered us some of the inclusive and integrated approaches that we could see in terms of solutions that might help us with uh, seeing human flourishing and perhaps giving us some clues about how to frame uh, policies that approach a good life. To finish today's conversation, I wonder if you might give us your favourite suggestion for how we might begin to achieve these big changes. I, I, I give you two. I'll be greedy um, on on it. I think yeah, you know, one of the yeah, well, one of the things we're involved in is this war of ideas, and we have to keep pushing forward, sort of ideas and values um, that that uh, you know that that really uh, that really challenge um, and confront. And so I think you know. In, in terms of ideas, it is particularly pushing forward the idea that r reducing inequality um, within one's locality, within one's state and within one's nation is an idea that needs to keep on being uh, chipped, uh, ch chipped away at. And at the same time, recognizing that not as detracting from everybody's life, but that is giving us, in a way, the good life, the buen vivir, as they say in Latin America, uh, the life that we can live in one world. And recognizing that certainly so much work on OECD countries in the book uh, by, by uh, Wilkinson and Pickett on, on the spirit level showed the way that actually, as societies become more equal than actually the wealthy are happier with that, as well as the middle income and the lower incomes, that equality actually gives everybody the sort of world in which they'd uh, like to live. So I think we need to keep battling on that world of ideas in practical terms. And um, I, I, I think you, you've looked at this then, everybody should be looking at their personal carbon, carbon footprint and working out um, how they can uh, reduce that because we've got to reduce uh, global uh, greenhouse gas uh, emissions quickly. So certainly for those of us who are carbon profligate, which is most middle class people in high income countries, then we do have to look at um, yeah, which sources we're getting our electricity from, what sort of vehicle we drive, whether we need to drive it, whether we can uh, greatly reduce our meat consumption uh, and a set of personal choices like that. So I think we need to think grand in terms of ideas and how we promote the ideas and micro in terms of the way in which we actually change our lives so that our carbon footprint is smaller. What a way to finish, David. It's been such a fantastically inspirational discussion. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. That's been a really yeah, a fascinating uh, conversation and great to be able to have these uh, conversations uh, with colleagues in Australia without having to fly to Australia. Absolutely. Some of the, the advantages, I suppose, of the coronavirus pandemic. But it's, yeah, it's fantastic to have you join us. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, David. Okay. Thank you. So... Anna Greta, yet another amazing conversation in this series, but I'm starting to feel like pieces are fitting together here. We're seeing some really powerful and consistent themes emerging around rethinking work, around the importance of both the local and the global. You know, David summed that up beautifully when he talked about pursuing the big ideas while making the changes at the local level. What did you take away from that conversation? Oh, what an inspiring man and an extraordinarily, yeah. an extraordinarily inspirational framing of the challenge that we face in terms of economic change and the opportunities for, for really significant societal benefit to rethinking ideas around consumptogenic growth. And, uh, you know, for me, he, he described the benefits of that really quite profoundly. It is extraordinary to see how the threads are coming together. It, uh, we've spoken to economists, we've spoken to pol political scientists, we've spoken to climate scientists, uh, we've spoken to people who are expert in universal basic income, and tonight we've been speaking to someone whose expertise is in development. And it is remarkable across the different silos and the different perspectives how these themes are emerging to rethink, to challenge the norms, to really look at the opportunities for radical transformation 
transformation. A deeply inspiring discussion tonight. Yes, it, it really was. There was so much to take away from that. And the thing that I'm taking from these conversations is that initial feeling that this is all overwhelming, that these challenges are just enormous. How can we even begin to think about the first step? But then as we talk to people like David Hume, you start to see where the solutions can come. Mm. And so I feel myself shifting from that sense of being overwhelmed to that incredible sense of optimism. Absolutely. That we can make change. There are solutions that are there waiting for us to grasp. And I guess we we do have a moment in time now uh, with this extraordinary global situation that we find ourselves in. And we get a vision of what David called the ugly or the bad, but we also get a vision of the good and and perhaps even better than that, that we can create. Mm. So I think it's that sense of a way forward and a sense of optimism that is leaving me feeling so inspired by these conversations. Mm. Absolutely. Yep. Inspiring in terms of our imagination. And you do, you feel the window flapping this year in 2020, that policy window flaps open from time to time. There's a tremendous appetite, I think, for us to do things better in the future and really to address these complex and really wicked problems. Yep. So we need to climb through that window together. We do, we do. And I think we've got a little team of people to, to work with, which is always the best way to do that. Um, Sharon, what have we got coming up on the next episode? Well, we have covered, as you've said, so many issues from politics to climate change to international development. But Anna Greta, health. <gasps> We have you sitting here, <laughs> the Canberra health doctor, <laughs> the Canberra heart doctor, I should say. Um, health is so central to all of these things that we're talking about and health broadly defined. So what do you say? Is it time to talk health? Absolutely. It's always the time to talk health, but uh, it is, it's so often, it's the raison d'etre that drives a lot of these policy decisions. I'm not the right expert for that. We need to speak to Sharon Friel. That's the person we really need to have on. Do you think she'll come and speak to us next week? I think if we tempt her in this direction with some exciting conversation, maybe a glass of whiskey, we could entice Sharon in this direction. Wouldn't that be amazing? I so, say we so ask. So let, let's have a – I think there's a good chance that we'll have Sharon Friel join us on the next episode of our wellbeing exploration for Policy Forum Pod. And between now and then, uh, we would both love you to join that com the conversation that we've been having uh, together and with our, our visitors so far. And that you can do that by reaching out to us on Twitter at, uh, at Apps Policy Forum or APPS Policy Forum, or you can email us at podcast at policyforum.net, or both Sharon and I are active on Twitter. You can... Find our podcast, of course, through the usual sites on ACAST, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to it. And if you have a chance to leave a review, then that would be greatly appreciated. And we'd love to see you join our Facebook group, where there's always a really interesting set of conversations around the recent uh, topics of discussion. And you can join uh, an in interested and engaged group of uh, commentators. So next week we'll be back with another episode in the wellbeing economy and we're looking forward to having Sharon Friel join us. But we're really also looking forward to continuing this global discussion uh, at a local level and we hope that some of the ideas that we've created so far might might foster some fantastic discussion. Thanks, Anna Greta. Looking forward to next week and looking forward to continuing these conversations with our listeners. So until next week, bye-bye from me. See you next week, Sharon. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.